Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. We're in Jonah chapter 3 today, and I want to share a message with you entitled, Who Knows God's Relentless Grace. And I'll begin with a question this morning to frame our thinking towards the message. Has God ever done something you didn't like? Not asking for any public responses here. Has God ever done something that you didn't like? How did you respond to God in this situation? You see, today, as we've been building to this point, We will see where Jonah obeys the command of God and the result is exactly what he knew that it would be. But most confusing of all to us is this. Jonah was neither surprised that this happened nor was he satisfied that this happened. And that's the surprising part. Let me do this. I'm going to read through the chapter as we work through the message today. So let me begin by reading verses 1 through 5 of Jonah 3, and then we'll continue with the message. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Jonah chapter 3 teaches us about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And as we stated last week, the greatest value for us is not to stay focused on Jonah, even though the name of the book is his, but rather to focus on what God is doing. I'll say this a number of times throughout the message today. The book of Jonah is authored, humanly speaking, by the man named Jonah. That's going to become ever more glaring to us and his purpose in writing as we work through the passage today. But Jonah is communicating a message to us not to focus our attention on him, but on God. And that's what he wants us to see. God's demonstrated his relentless divine desire to save and power to save so far and he'll continue to do that today but as we saw last week we don't always like God's work in salvation that just seems like a crazy thing to say in church doesn't it I mean, we don't always like God's work in salvation what I thought that's what we were about what are you talking about hang on and watch Here's what I want you to walk away with today. God who is sovereign to save calls his people to be a faithful witness so the nations can hear and believe. He calls his people to be a faithful witness so the nations can hear and believe. Today we're going to see how it is that God's relentless grace works 
how it works. And I want us to see four lessons that I believe Jonah points out to us here in this chapter of God's relentless grace. Now, Jonah 3 begins with what may be one of the most encouraging sentences in all of Scripture. You hear me say that a lot, don't you? You said that about another passage. You know what my favorite passage of Scripture is? Usually the one I'm studying. Look how it begins. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. The second time. You see, of all we've seen God do in the first two chapters, we're reminded of this, friends. God gives second chances. That's powerful, isn't it? This isn't a trick. I'm not setting you up for anything here. That's it. This is it. God is the one who gives us second chances. And he doesn't owe anyone a second chance. And he doesn't always relent to give another chance. But friends, we can be sure that when we hear the gospel, God is inviting us to trust and believe in him. This is the first lesson I believe Jonah points out to us from his own life is that God gives second chances. Let that sink in for just a moment. God gives second chances. Anybody come here today looking for a second chance? Anybody run into a situation this week where you need a second chance? Man, I really messed that up. I need a mulligan. I need a do-over. I need a second chance. That's what we're talking about, friends. You see, if so, you probably want to know this then. When, when does God give second chances? And I've got good news for you today. Not only does God give second chances, but he gives them every time his word is heard. It's an invitation for you to believe, to trust in him. Consider what God's second chance for Jonah entailed though. I want you to see this because it's important to understand the message today. God gave Jonah a second chance to obey his last command. God's second chance for Jonah was to obey the last command he gave him. That to this point in the book, Jonah was still running from. He was still running from. Why wouldn't God change his command? Why wouldn't God uh, adjust his will for Jonah? I mean, man, obviously this was hard on Jonah. Uh, Jonah didn't want to do this, and there's probably a lot of complicating factors in his life, some really good reasons why he didn't want to do what God had commanded him to do. Why didn't God just make some concessions, make some uh, 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 adjustments to the will? Maybe not all of Nineveh, but find a Ninevite, somebody that's lived close to Nineveh before, why don't you just tell them? Why doesn't God do that, friends? You see, friends, God's command is never negotiated by personal preference. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason. God gives his command in his word to fulfill his divine will. And in the command of God's word, we both learn and discern what God's will is. That's what Romans 12, 2 is all about. What does Romans 12, 1 begin to tell us? 
Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers, do not conform any longer to the ways of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. How does he renew our mind? By the word of God filling our mind. Then you will be able to know, that means discern, what God's will is. His good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. You see, the reason that God doesn't negotiate his commands is because he is fulfilling his divine will in the person that his command is given to. And once his command comes, the Holy Spirit comes along with it to empower us to fulfill God's will in our lives. In obedience to God's command, we show our love to God. This is how that God knows that we love him, that other people know that we love God, John tells us in his epistle, is that we obey his commands. And it also shows that our lives are aligned with God. Peter says that we are a peculiar people. Why? Because we don't live like the world lives. We live like God commands. We don't just go around trying to be weird. That's not the point. But we go around learning to walk by faith, by the Spirit and the power of the Word of God being fulfilled in our life. You see, the work that God has commissioned us to do, even in the Great Commission, is to baptize all, all peoples in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then what? Teach them to observe all of these things whatsoever I have commanded you. Teach them to negotiate? No. To observe. That's obedience by faith, friends. Obedience by faith. You see, God gives his command because as we trust and obey, he makes us more like Jesus. And he brings us into his divine work in all of creation. You see, we don't always know why God gives second chances. But we have the benefit of insight here. We can see why here. And this is important for us to remember today, Christian. Jonah's second chance became Nineveh's first opportunity. Jonah's second chance became Nineveh's first opportunity. We really have no idea how it is God wants to use us by a faithful testimony. And the extent to which he will use us. I remember once hearing John Piper say... God is always doing 10,000 things at any given moment. Quite frankly, I think that's an understatement. I think it's 10 gazillion things, uncountable things at any given moment. But here's what we do know. God calls each of us to a faithful witness because he has ordained. What does that big word ordained means? It means that God has placed his will and his divine intention upon us to use us for the salvation of the nations. Friends, your every chance is always somebody's opportunity. Your every chance to bear a faithful testimony, be a faithful witness, is always somebody's opportunity to be saved. What a powerful reality Jonah is walking us into that God gives second chances it tells us that Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. I'm gonna tell you, verses one, two, and three of Jonah three are going a lot better than verses one, two, and three of Jonah one, aren't they? 
when he got up, bought a ticket, went the opposite direction. It tells us that Jonah arose as he was told. And he went to Nineveh according to the word of God. I wish I could tell you for Jonah, it continued in such a good directory. But it doesn't. You see, obedience is always in accordance with God's word. And that must be our aim in all things. Not to take the parts we like and to discard the parts that we don't. Not to diminish or to water down the parts that we think are too hard, too high, or too holy to where we can accomplish them. The reason the commands of God are so often beyond what we can do in our own strength, our own intellect, and our own will is because God is working in us to make us more like Jesus. It's called faith. It's called faith. Do you see there? There is no grace from God that is absent of obedience. God doesn't give grace that in some way, oh, you, you, you missed the obedient element in that. You must have got a bad one. It's interesting. So often in the church, we talk about this word grace like it's a get out a have to free card. Like, oh, grace is one of those things, you know, God still loves you. No, see, that's imposing. That's cheap grace. That's not saving grace. So often we talk about grace in the church as if God's going to be okay if you, uh, you know, take a few things off the to-do ticker today that he's told you to do. Mm -mm, friends, that's not grace at all. Grace is never absent of obedience because God doesn't give a grace that's impotent to produce our obedience. And what we're going to see here is that even in the life of Jonah, God is working by his grace in Jonah as he works through Jonah. Does it mean that every time God's grace comes to us, we perform perfectly? No, we know that. We, we, that is totally clear, and I'm not saying that, but grace is never our opportunity to negotiate or in any way downgrade the commands of God that come to us. You see, we know this, that when we live in disobedience to God's word, it's not because his grace was insufficient to provide for us, but rather because we are running from or rejecting his grace. Because in a faithful witness, as we will see with Jonah, we always multiply the grace of God, not only in our own life, but to the life of many, many others. Here we see that God calls Nineveh an exceedingly great city, the text qualifies this statement in a few ways. That word for great is a word that typically refers to numbers. And, and, and we know that we can at least infer safely that, that Nineveh uh, was being referred to here as a place with a lot of people. It had a large population. And we know from historical record, it in fact did. As a matter of fact, Nineveh, the city, was about four times the size of Samaria, the northern region that was Jonah's home. So, so we know that there were many people there and likely the reason that the text calls it a great city is simply because of the people that were there and knowing what God was about to do, God said it's exceedingly great because I'm about to do a great work among a whole lot of people. 
That's what he's getting at. It tells us Nineveh was a three days journey in breadth. Now, we don't know if this meant uh, it took three days to walk around the circumference of it or if it took three days to get through uh, the middle of it. Whatever the, the case may have been. I just said that wrong, didn't I? Yeah, I didn't do too well in geometry anyway. What is it? Circumference is when you go through. What is it when you go around? I said it right. See, I'm better than you thought I was. Anyway. This is how my mind works on days. You get the picture. We're not sure if it was three days to walk around it or three days to get through it, but it was one of the two. It wasn't just a three-day journey to get to it, but to get through it, if you understand what I'm saying. The main thing is this. Jonah's work couldn't be completed in a day. That's what we need to understand at this moment. So when Jonah arrived, he went how far? One day's journey, and he proclaimed the message. Hold on now. It's going to tear your heart out. It's just going to be so tender and warm. Listen to what he said. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. (laughs) Thank you, Jonah. Thank you for explaining in great detail and uh, all that's going to go on. Jonah walks in to Nineveh and barely gets across the threshold into the city and gives a message that could arguably be stated to have no hope in it whatsoever. There is no option. There's just overthrow that's going to happen, but you got 40 days to get ready. And the Bible tells us that what happened next is what many call the greatest a revival in recorded history. Not because just of the number of people. The, the, the populations are estimated around 120,000 people lived in Nineveh. But because of the percentage, everyone repented. Friends, there's never been a preacher, a Bible teacher, or otherwise that didn't want 100% of belief. And that's what Jonah got. All who heard the message believed God. But before we celebrate Jonah for his accuracy and his second chance, here's what we need to understand. That all obedience in accordance with God's word is beneficial for our lives. There's just so much give and take here for us to capture All obedience in accordance with God's word is beneficial for our lives. For Jonah, this obedience, even though we're going to see in a moment it was less than full-hearted, it was still beneficial for his life. But not all obedience is done in the same spirit. I remember a, a number of years ago, I saw a quote from a famous theologian named John Wayne. It was a deep thought. And I realize I'm dating myself here to even know who John Wayne is. I mentioned Clint Eastwood around some people the other day and they're like, who? What? (laughs) So sad. John Wayne said this. He said, life is hard. Life is harder when you do stupid things. That's deep, friends. That's deep thoughts from John Wayne. You see, obedience to God blesses us with joy. It blesses us with the fullness of God. 
It blesses us with the goodness of God in our life. When we trust him and obey, it it showers, it lavishes his love. Not, Not just because we obeyed, we didn't earn anything from God, but it's because we're trusting God and that that faith is being manifested in our obedience and the fullness of God is filling to overflow with us. But friends, the blessing of obedience becomes hard when we begrudge God for making us do it. And that's what we see in the life of Jonah. He did it, but he didn't like it. He not only didn't like it, He begrudged God for it. You see, friends, God's grace is always sweet. But when you sour it with a hard spirit, it builds a grudge against God inside of you. Here's the second lesson I want you to see today. God is sovereign to save. And he has ordained for the gospel to go forth by the faithful witness of his people. He has ordained for the gospel to go forth by the faithful witness of his people. You see, God uses imperfect people to serve his perfect will. If you've never been encouraged about being able to be a faithful witness for God, Jonah ought to be a total adrenaline boost of encouragement for you. Man, if Jonah can be effective for God, anybody can be effective for God. But God uses imperfect people to serve his perfect will. Look at the contrast that are written in the text here that demonstrate this lesson. First of all, we see Jonah's complete lack of dedication contrasted by God's relentless grace. I mean, this couldn't be more day and night. You see, Jonah likely only did the bare minimum to satisfy what it was that he perceived was his obligation to God. Let me tell you what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to stick my foot just inside the city walls, and I'm going to say something in kind of a hushed voice. And I'm going to do all that you've told me to do, but I'm going to do it in a way that I don't hope you'll do what I know you're going to do anyway. That's kind of the spirit with which Jonah was serving. He surely didn't give 100%, nowhere near it. And he didn't go above and beyond. If you remember that all repented and believed in Nineveh and you think about how effective God was in his relentless grace and how lackluster Jonah was in his willingness to serve, the contrast only continues to grow wider and wider apart. We can't say all that Nineveh being three days in a journey, uh, a three days journey in breath means, but a contrast can be drawn with Jonah who began to go how far? A day's journey. A day's journey. And let me say this, friends. This will be the last reference to Jonah in this chapter, leaving us to conclude That's all he did. That's all he did. The author, who is Jonah, is contrasting the the size of the city. It's a three-day journey in breath versus the extent of Jonah's work. I went one day in. There's a tension in this. Jonah, you've got two more days of the city. No, I don't. I've done what I'm supposed to do. You see, are you familiar with pharaoh rods? Like I like to camp and hike and backpack and that kind of thing. And a ferro rod is a, it's an essential tool. It's that little rod that you strike and hot sparks come off of it to start fires. When you strike the ferro rod, they say sometimes those sparks reach 2,000 degrees, incredibly hot. 
But the key to a ferrule rod is not getting the spark only, but making sure that the tinder and the kindle is ready to catch the spark. I mean, if you just take a log, you can spark it all day. You're never going to burn it. You're going to break your arm trying to get it to burn, but it's never going to burn. But if you prepare wood and you feather it up almost to be like a cotton-like state and you strike a spark, the smallest spark will flame up immediately. I think that's what Jonah did. I think Jonah said, you know what, God? I'm gonna step into the city and I'm gonna throw a spark, but that's all I'm gonna do. That's all I'm gonna do. What Jonah didn't know is how well God had prepared the tender of the hearts of the Ninevites. God was already there working. God was already there stirring the hearts of these people who acknowledgeably are wicked and evil. And when Jonah threw the spark, God blew his spirit across that spark and he carried it into that perfectly prepared tinder and it tells us that it flamed into a raging fire of revival across the whole city. Across the whole city. And yet while Jonah still burns within, God's burning in gospel mission across the whole city. We see the contrast of his lack of dedication versus God's relentless grace to save. We see another contrast about God's relentless grace in the size of the city versus the time that God gave. How long did it take to cover the whole city? Three days, right? How long did God give them to repent? 40 days and you'll be overthrown. God didn't need 40 days. He gave them 40 days. Why? Because the size difference between three days to cover the city, God wanted to make sure everybody heard, but he gave them 40 days to repent. Friends, listen, the size of your sin does not compare to the immensity of God's grace. God is patient with you, friends, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to eternal life. God is working. God is working. He is working for your salvation. He wants you to trust in him. He wants you to share the gospel. He wants you to be a part of his mission. And this is why the immensity of his grace is so great. You go, we don't need all that time, God. I know, but his patience gives it. His patience gives it. God is gracious and patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And the third contrast we see is in the first five verses of Jonah chapter three versus the first three verses of Jonah chapter one. It reminds us that when we fail to obey, when we fail to obey as Christians, people who would have otherwise been greatly impacted suffer. They suffer. But when Christians obey in sharing the gospel, all are blessed by God. You see, in this second lesson of God's sovereignty to save and how he's ordained for his people to send the gospel forth in the, in the world, maybe the question arises, can't God send others? Why didn't God just go get another prophet? We, we know there were other prophets working at the same time that Jonah lived. Why didn't he just go get somebody else? Because he chose and he called Jonah. That's why. That's why. You see, the work God was doing in Jonah required Nineveh. And the work that God did in Nineveh required Jonah. You see, 
So often we reduce the work of God just to some kind of simple transaction that we make and then move beyond. But that's not the way God works, friends. God's working in Jonah's heart. He's working in some deep darkness in Jonah's heart. The Ninevites were the only, weren't the only wicked and evil people because remaining down deep inside Jonah's heart was some darkness that said, I don't want those people to know what I know. I've often been asked, if God is sovereign in salvation, then why bother preaching the gospel? Doesn't that put you out of a job, pastor? Not at all. Here's why. Obedience. Because he commands us to. And I go back to the very beginning of the message that talked about why does God command anything so that his divine will can be carried forth in the world? Because God never sends his word out and it returned to him void. It will accomplish the very purpose for which he sent it out. And that's what we're seeing in the life of Jonah here. God is accomplishing his divine will in Nineveh, yes, but also in Jonah, also in Jonah. God's plan is that his sovereign salvation come through the preaching of the gospel. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, when he says this. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What's he talking about? The treasure is the gospel. Jars of clay, our human bodies. Our existence here and now, which we know every day is a further demonstration of the temporary nature of our time here on this earth. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why did God plan this way? Well, Paul answers that to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. It's not in the creativity of the message that people get saved. It's not in the wow of the intellect that somebody gets saved. It's not in the command of the pulpit that people get saved. It's in the power of a God who saves, who is patient, who is loving, and who is relentless in his grace to take a heart and to turn it for his purpose. That's the only reason and only way God saves. And friends, all of our labors of faithful witness, whether in the formal preaching event or in the relational, personal interaction and conversation, friends, those are as much for us as they are for anyone else. I've also been asked, if God is sovereign to save, then why do I need to share the gospel? We don't have to, friends. We get to. Do you realize we, we have been given a treasure of eternity? That this is not just helpful for today or tomorrow or next month. This is an eternal treasure. And in God's sovereign plan, he ordains his children to share in his eternal work. He brings us into the story that he is writing, the story of redemption, the story of, of Emmanuel's veins from which blood flows to bring redemption upon all who will believe. And when we do not, when we refuse to, we are the ones who miss the great blessing of God. Yes, friends, God's work can be done by anyone who will obey him. But the glory for which he created and called your life can only be offered to him by you. No one else can glorify God 
with the divine intention that he created and redeemed in you. There's no replacement for that. What God does in salvation is not limited to what we do in our serving, for his work is so much greater, so much greater. Ten gazillion things. At any given moment, God's doing them. God is doing them. Look at verses six through nine. Here's what God was already doing in Nineveh when Jonah showed up. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, Jonah chapter one showed that no matter how far or low you go, you're never too far to be reached by God. Jonah chapter three reveals that no matter how high you attain to, you're never beyond your need for God. And that's what we see when the king hears the message. When his word, when God's word reaches the king, he immediately responds in belief and repentance. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, both of which are the demonstration of his understanding of his life in light of the glory of God. And both of them represent belief and repentance and poverty of life and death without God's help. He issues a proclamation not only for his own life, but for the whole reason, a region for all creatures to respond. He didn't just say men, women, boys, and girls, everybody. He said, get your cows, get your goats, get your sheep, get everything and put it on all of them. He says, I want everyone to participate. I want you to call out to the Lord mightily that he may turn and relent. Pray that he will not destroy us. There's something interesting that strikes me though here, and it is this. Notice this, they knew their ways were evil. They knew their ways were evil. How did they know their ways were evil? Goodness grief, with the explanation of Jonah, we're all left a little wondering what's going on. How did they know? We see the Bible answers that question for us about all humanity in Romans chapter one when it tells us that God has written in all of creation to make it plain. And he has also, chapter two of Romans, written upon the heart of every person his law. God will be known. He may be rejected, but he is known. His message through Jonah gave hope for salvation. That's a miracle in and of itself. To people who otherwise did not know God, such that they believed and responded in repentance. Here again, this is just a chapter of contrast, friends. People who don't know God are the ones repenting and responding in faith. And the one who does know God is so embroiled in his own internal battle, he's only fully obligating or fulfilling the obligation to God and he'll have no more of God. But we see here this, friends, revival changes everything. And it aligns all things in response to God's word. According to the king, you should be in such revival that even the dogs know it. 
Something's different. Not kicking me in the morning anymore or something. Something is different. Here's the third lesson that we learn from verses six through nine of Jonah. God relents when people repent in faith towards him. God relents when people repent in faith toward him. See, friends, repentance is never pretty. Sackcloth and ashes, you won't ever find them on the runway of a fashion show. But it always leads to the glorious response from God. All the Ninevites believed and turned in faith to God in repentance. And then they showed it with the way that they lived. And when God saw their response of faith, he relents and he brings salvation. When people respond in faith, friends, God relents from judgment to bring salvation. And this for the glory of his name. He's not begrudging. He's like, oh, you, oh man, now I gotta save you. No, no, no. That's what he's been waiting on. That's what he wants. That's what he wills. It's the glory of his name. But there's a practical aspect going on here that we must deal with in verse nine. Look what it says. This is the king speaking. Who knows? God may turn and relent. Who knows? That's a penetrating question. That's a convicting question. Who knows? Think about this. If someone knew If someone knew that God would relent from judging Nineveh, wouldn't they tell him, hey, you you don't have to undergo the judgment of God. There is another way. Who knows? Why would someone know good news and withhold good news, not tell people of God's relentless grace? Who knows? You see that guy earlier today that stepped inside the gate and mumbled something and then pretty quickly he was gone. He knew. He knew. Jonah knows. Jonah knows. But the reason he didn't tell is because he evidently was already gone. He left verses ago. He hadn't been around to see all that God was doing. He didn't even hear the edict of the king, the proclamation, the testimony of what God was doing at the highest level. And he didn't tell because he wanted God to destroy him. Because he didn't want them to believe and to repent. Friends, Jonah didn't want God to do what he knew God would do. So in his obedience, He gave the most fractioned effort he possibly could. It's the smallest fraction you can possibly imagine. When God gave 100%. Causes me to ask a question. What must consume a heart to know God will save. And not tell people who need God to save. What, What consumes that heart? A number of years ago. In an interview. With Pierce Morgan. Magician Penn Gillette, a famed atheist, provided one of the most clarifying statements to this question. I'm going to read the quote that he gave an answer about evangelizing. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. 
If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make socially awkward and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. End of quote. We Christians ought to learn something from an atheist. It's that important. And I have to ask us today, Christian, is there any hint of this kind of hate in your heart? You go, no, pastor, I don't hate anybody. Just enough not to tell them. Hate seems like such a strong word here. And yet that's what an atheist called it. An atheist. Are there any people that you are uninterested in sharing the gospel with so that God can move in saving power? It's not an easy passage. It's a much more difficult question to face and to honestly answer. Even mature Christians, we must be honest in our admission, not just with the overall trajectory of our life, but with the daily goings about in our life. Who knows? Who knows? The truth of the gospel should motivate every Christian to be zealous in sharing. If you know there is hope today, I remind you once again, it is Jonah who is writing this story to us. Maybe Jonah's greatest act of true repentance is not what he accomplishes in the story, but in the writing of the story. So all who come after him can know what he didn't want the Ninevites to know. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God relents because they turned to him. Friends, that's relentless grace. And that's what relentless grace is all about. God relents on all who turn to him. Lesson number four is this for us. Knowing that God relents invites us to repent. When we remain hardened towards God, we refuse God's grace. We refuse the great blessing of his grace on our own life. And so the question comes, do we stand ready to forgive when people repent, all people, any people? Are we ready to repent for any hardness in our heart towards other people? Because we are faced with the simple fact that God in his relentless grace loves the people that we loathe. He loves them and he calls us to them. 
He loves them so much that he wants to use us to share the gospel with them. And it's not just transactional, friends. He's not just trying to get some good deed out of us so he can do some good deed for them. But just as he was with Jonah, so he is with us. He's turning the areas of our heart that remain dark to the glorious light of the gospel. To show the true love that we've been loved with. In sending us with the great privilege of telling all about the love of God. No matter how bad society may become, and no matter how far, God, uh, how far from God culture may get, we must never lose hope, life point, of all that God wants to do by the preaching and the sharing of the gospel. God, who is sovereign to save, Calls his people to be a faithful witness so the nations can hear and believe.